0: Chapter Two of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter Two. The Reichstag is in flames. Months of intrigue in President Hindenburg's palace had preceded the fall of General Schleicher. Poppen's cranking up of industry had come to nothing. The economic difficulties were increasing. At every step, Schleicher stumbled up against obstacles which were created for him through the influence wielded by his predecessor, Poppen, over President Hindenburg. From the moment of his own resignation, Poppen was working systematically for the overthrow of his opponent, Schleicher. Round Hindenburg there was a number of more or less definite groups fighting each other. But they were not fighting over personal antipathies or sympathies, but over partial interests of sections of the ruling class, the separate interests of politically influential groups. General Kurt von Schleicher had risen from the Reichswehr to the position of Chancellor of the German Reich. The man who announced in his wireless broadcast following his appointment as Chancellor that he was a social general, had for 14 years had his hand in the political pie whenever it was necessary to push the political development of the Weimar Republic one step further in the direction of reaction. Schleicher first appeared in November 1918 as the connecting link between the general staff of the army and the social democratic people's delegates in the beating down of the revolution. The name of the young captain attached to the general staff appeared in those days linked with the names of Hindenburg, Gruner, and Ebert. He had considerable influence in the newly created Reichswehr. In October 1923, he put through the state of emergency when Ebert handed over all executive power to the Reichswehr General von Secht in order to meet the revolutionary menace which resulted from the misery of inflation. Since his youth, Schleicher had been in close communication with Hindenburg and his son, Colonel Oskar von Hindenburg, through his service in the 3rd Guards Regiment and on the general staff. Schleicher succeeded in becoming a personal informant of Hindenburg. He had the strings in his hands when, in March 1930, Hindenburg threw the Social Democratic Chancellor, Hermann, and with him Social Democracy, out of the government. Schleicher arranged Grunings' fall when the controlling groups of German capitalism were tending more and more towards the summoning of the National Socialists to power. Schleicher himself took Gruner's place as Minister of the Reichswehr. Even when Papen was Chancellor, Schleicher had already begun to fill the most important posts in the government apparatus with his own reliable men— It was Schleicher who turned the scale when Papen's government was rocking and induced the majority of ministers to deliver the ultimatum that Papen must go. Schleicher had to come more and more into the open, but it was easier to maneuver on the smooth parquet floors of the government offices than to carry out a policy on the precipitous ground of the deepening economic crisis. His short term of office ran out without a program, without a policy, with nothing but vague hints at all kinds of plans. His government was only to serve the most powerful capitalist groups of Germany as a bridge to the fascist attack on the growing revolutionary movement among the workers. In the group closely associated with Hindenburg, there was, in the first place, his son and personal adjutant, Colonel Oscar von Hindenburg. His Secretary of State was Dr. Meissner, who had filled the same position under Ebert. Von Papen, too, after his term as Chancellor, was in Hindenburg's confidential circle. Papen had special support in the Herrenklub, a very influential association of politicians, bankers, big employers, and big landowners, high civil servants, and officers. Papen had connections with the National Socialists, with Hitler and Göring, with the Stahlhelm, and with the German Nationalist Party under Hugenberg. A few weeks after his fall from office, Papen met Hitler in Cologne at the House of Schroeder, the banker. Hitler, who on November 7th had issued a manifesto calling for a fight to the last breath against Papen, in the banker's drawing room, agreed to the confidential proposals put forward by Pappen. From Cologne, Pappen went to Dortmund to conduct secret negotiations with Springorum and other representatives of Rhenish-Westphalian heavy industry on the question of the government. Schleicher, too, had close relations with the National Socialists, especially with their socialist wing led by Gregor Strasser. Schleicher attempted to exploit, for his purposes, the crisis in the National Socialist Party, which was marked by the loss of two million voters in the elections of November 6th. He had links with the Social Democrat Leipart, president of the German Trade Union General Council, with the Christian Trade Unions, and with the German Nationalist Commercial Employees Association. He tried to create some kind of trade union mass basis for himself through these cross-threads from the trade unions under social democratic leadership to the socialist wing of the National Socialists. At the same time, Schleicher presented the Junkers with millions and millions for relief. Confidential agents carried on negotiations between these groups. Every day new coalitions were being formed and dissolved. Every day the situation changed. Newspapers changed their owners, and their editors changed their political views. A struggle raged for the control of the liberal papers of the Ulstein and Rudolf Masse concerns. The Teglicker Rundschau, once Stresemann's organ, became Schleicher's mouthpiece. There was talk of money which had found its way to the paper from the well-filled chests of the Reichsfair. A new editor was appointed, Hans Zerer, leader of the so-called Action Group and editor of its journal Action, which carried on a special sort of fascist propaganda with pseudo-revolutionary slogans. Papen tried to secure control of the Berliner Tageblatt, The export industries, the big shipping companies, and the Reich railways, Siemens, had as their organ the Deutsche Allgemeine Zeitung, which they had been subsidizing for a considerable time. During those weeks, Schleicher also had the backing of Herr Krupp von Bohlen and Halbach and privy Councillor Duisberg of the IG Farben Industrie, the chemical combine. These were the leading figures in the Reich Union of German Industry. Papen had close connections with Springorum and Thyssen, Hugenberg, and the big agrarian interests. All groups were agreed that the National Socialists would have to be drawn in as the political prop for a government of capitalist dictatorship. But there were differences of opinion as to the form and extent of their participation in the government. The intrigues in Hindenburg's palace reflected these differences. THE EAST Prussian RELIEF SCANDAL Towards the end of January 1933, Schleicher felt that his government was being more and more undermined by the intrigues of Papen and the big agrarian interests associated with him. He felt, too, that he was being pushed out of the circle of Hindenburg's confidential advisers. He therefore decided to have recourse to a defensive maneuver which he had been contemplating for some time and an immense mass of material appeared in the papers exposing the Osthilfe corruption of the big agrarian Junkers. A commission of inquiry was set up by the Reichstag. The working masses were roused to fury. The scandal threatened to involve even Hindenburg himself. As far back as the time when Hermann Müller was chancellor, the Junkers had received millions through the so-called Osthilfe to put their bankrupt estates onto a paying basis. The small peasants had got practically nothing out of it. The big landowners pocketed the lion's share. In the Reichstag Committee of Inquiry, it was now revealed, at the end of January 1933, that in addition the rich landowners had received many hundreds of thousands of marks to which they were not entitled. An immensely rich owner of six manorial estates and a personal friend and neighbor of Hindenburg's had secured 621,000 marks by giving false particulars. Two counts took 700,000 marks in this way. A certain landowner, who had ruined his property on gambling, wine, and women, secured 281,000 marks. Two controllers of offices, through which the Osthilfe was distributed, paid off their own debts and pocketed tens of thousands in addition. A certain lord of the manor transferred his livestock to his wife in order to secure 154,000 marks of the Osthilfe. Day by day, new names appeared in the list of those who were involved in the Osthilifus scandal, including neighbors of Hindenburg's estate, people who had the run of his house. There was a great uneasiness in the Hindenburg family, for some of the Junkers involved in the scandal were among those who had organized the presentation of the Neudeck estate to Hindenburg on his 80th birthday. No gift tax had been paid on this gift, and the estate had been registered not in Hindenburg's name, but in that of his son, so that the state was also robbed of the future succession duty. The Junkers and industrial magnates had twice collected funds for repairs and equipment for the Neudeck property, and a third time for the purpose of putting it on a paying basis. The mud of the Osthilfe scandal spattered the walls of the President's palace. The Junkers decided Schleicher must go, as they had decided before that Brüning must go. Hitler Becomes Chancellor On the morning of January 28th, the Schleicher government resigned, when Hindenburg refused to give authority for the dissolution of the Reichstag. Papen was instructed by Hindenburg to negotiate with Hitler for the formation of a government of national concentration. Two days of unparalleled tension followed. The Communist Party broadcast leaflets calling for a general strike against the imminent Hitler dictatorship. Schleicher negotiated with Leiphardt. The struggle behind the scenes grew more acute. On the night of January 29th to 30th, Schleicher was toying with the idea of the immediate proclamation of a military dictatorship and the march of the Potsdam garrison on Berlin. It seemed that a critical situation might develop at any moment. Then Hindenburg decided to appoint Hitler chancellor on conditions, and so it came about that the hitler Papen hugenberg government was formed on the morning of January thirtieth, 1933. In June 1932, the Papen-Schleicher government had depended on National Socialist toleration. Goebbels later charged the representatives of the Herrenklub with having adroitly clambered to power over the broad backs of the Nazis. In November 1932, the leader of the National Socialist fraction in the Prussian Diet, Wilhelm Kube, declared that the National Socialists would never march with the battle cry of with Hugenberg for the stock exchange and capital. But during the following months, Papen had been preparing the National Socialists to throw overboard their thundering declamations as superfluous ballast when Hindenburg gave them the call. The chancellorship fell into Hitler's lap, but not as the fruit of some heroic struggle. January 30th was not the culmination of a national revolution which had conquered power by a bold attack. Adolf Hitler was given the post of Chancellor when the leading sections of the ruling class wanted not only to strengthen their power against the working class, but also to smother the smell of the Osthilfe scandal. On the evening of January 30th, the stormtroopers and the Stahlhelm marched with flaming torches along the Wilhelmstrasse, cheering Hindenburg and Hitler. The storm troop men and the Stahlhelmers knew nothing of what had been going on behind the scenes, and when they acclaimed the Day of National Awakening, they did not know that corruption and the lust for profit were its godparents. The Wave of Resistance Rises On January thirtieth, 1933, the Communist Party made an official proposal to the executive of the Social Democratic Party and to the General Council of the Trade Unions, under Social Democratic leadership, and also the Christian trade unions, that they should jointly organize a general strike for the overthrow of the Hitler government. Social Democracy and the Trade Unions answered, Hitler has come to power legally. It was necessary to wait, they said, until he violated legality. No fight should be put up now. The general attitude of the social democratic press was that Hitler would soon be finished with. Considerable sections of the German workers accepted these statements. The Communist Party was unable, as yet, to bring the majority of the working class into action. The hastily formed Hitler government would have been unable to cope with the united assault of the working class in those first days of February. The Nazi storm troops had just been passing through a severe crisis and in some places had lost half their membership. The police apparatus could not yet be relied upon by the new government. It would also have had difficulties with Schleicher's Reichswehr. But the refusal of the general strike gave the Hitler government the time it needed. Nevertheless, the resistance of the workers was growing in Berlin, in Hamburg, in the Ruhr, in the lower Rhine area, in central Germany, and in all parts of the Reich. The Hitler dictatorship was opposed by a working class whose fighting strength was as yet unbroken. On January 22nd, they had refused to allow themselves to be provoked. Now, a wide movement was developing for united action against the raging fascist terror. Social-democratic, Christian, and communist workers united to defend newspaper and trade union buildings. Hitler could prohibit papers, refuse to allow demonstrations, and send his storm troops into the working-class quarters, but the working-class answer was the rise of a wide, anti-fascist movement in which all sections were united. THE NEED FOR A PROVOCATIVE ACT Hitler had held power for some weeks, but the situation was far from favorable. The new cabinet had dissolved the Reichstag and ordered new elections. Papen's terrorist decrees were again brought into force in sharpened form, and the Osthilfe scandal was buried in a secret commission. Hitler proclaimed on the wireless his non existent four years plan. But the millions of his voters who were looking forward to German socialism could not be put off merely with a couple of emergency decrees and vague promises. At the end of January, Hitler had been compelled to enter the government on the restricting conditions imposed by Hindenburg. There were many reasons why he was ready to compromise. The discontent among his members and supporters, crisis and numerous resignations from the National Socialist Party, besides the enormous debts of the Party. In bourgeois circles, a number of former Nazi voters had already begun to show a tendency towards the German Nationalists. On November 6, 1932, the Communists had won 11 seats in the Reichstag, while Hitler had lost 35. In the new government, there were three National Socialist Ministers, opposed by eight representatives of the German Nationalists and of the Stahlhelm. There could be no change in the cabinet without Hindenburg's consent. In view of the growing anti-fascist feeling among the workers, Hitler's election prospects were not good. Hugenberg and the German nationalists held all the economic posts of vantage in the cabinet, and masses of the people were beginning to realize that Hitler was carrying out the policy of the worst firebrands among the capitalists. The disillusionment of the masses would show itself in an increased communist vote on March 5th. It had become an imperative necessity for the National Socialist leaders to change the situation by an act of provocation planned on a grandiose scale. Then the elections could be carried out while the pogrom feeling against the communists and social democrats was at its height. At the same time, the position of the National Socialists within the Cabinet could be strengthened. Goebbels provided the plans for the most outrageous of all the acts of provocation which a ruling class has ever used against the insurgent working class. Goering, president of the Reichstag and commander of the Prussian police, was responsible for the exact fulfillment of the plan. The original plans of the National Socialist leaders to bring all stormtroopers to Berlin for the night of March 5th to 6th had been shattered by the threat of their allies to bring out the Reichswehr against them. But the new plan of provocation provided the means to satisfy the National Socialist demand for complete governmental power and also to prepare the way for an unrestrained Nazi terror. The National Socialist leaders moved into action the German nationalist police president of Berlin, Dr. Melker, was transferred to Magdeburg, and his place in Berlin was filled by the National Socialist retired Admiral von Levitzau. On February 24th, the karl liebknecht House, the headquarters of the German Communist Party, was once again searched by the police. Although the Karl Liebknecht House had already been in the possession of the police for some weeks and was only left by the police after a thorough search which produced no results, now suddenly seriously incriminating material was found. The day before the Reichstag fire, gigantic headlines in the whole bourgeois press told readers of the secrets of Karl Liebknecht House, subterranean passages, treasonable material, and plans for a Bolshevistic revolution. The press also reported an alleged Communist bomb outrage on the railway in East Prussia. This outrage was never mentioned again. On January 25th, there was a small fire in the Berliner Schloss, which was announced sensationally as a Communist act. In this way, public opinion was carefully prepared, from paper to paper, from day to day, for the Great Coup. The Communist Party received reliable reports that the government had planned an act of provocation. The deputy Wilhelm Pieck spoke of it in the Sportpalast in Berlin. He mentioned a Nazi plan for a faked attempt to assassinate Hitler or some other act of provocation, which was to take place some days before the election and lead to the prohibition of the Communist Party. The Communist fraction in the Reichstag made a similar statement at a conference of foreign press representatives. The Hitler press, following instructions, raised the campaign against the revolutionary workers to boiling point. Everyone who was following the political situation realized that a crisis was imminent. Everyone felt that there was something in the air. Then, on the night of February 27th to 28th, all German wireless stations broadcast the message, The Reichstag is in flames. End of chapter 2